Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Good to see so many of you here this morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. And we continue this morning in our series of Luke's Gospel, going uh, throughout the entire Gospel. It's going to take us to the better part of this year. Uh, And so thanks for being here with us. Now, a mission statement is a very helpful tool for an organization or even for an individual. You see, a mission statement answers the question, why? Why are we here? Why am I here? What's my life really about? It provides focus. It sets expectations. It helps with goal setting in the decision-making process. It helps you to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. And so a lot of the day-to-day, what I would call gunkiness, a lot of the day-to-day gunkiness, that is a word. I actually looked it up in the dictionary. really is. It's a word. Gunkiness. A lot of what we experience on a day-to-day is because we don't have a good why. We're spending too much time on the task of personal management, kind of going throughout the day, getting... Emails return, managing the schedule, not enough time on personal leadership of making sure the day-to-day of our lives matches with our deepest priorities and commitments. And so a mission statement helps with that. And Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, is Jesus' personal mission statement. Look there with me. He goes to the synagogue, verse 16, as was his custom. And when he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he deliberately chooses this text, which is a rendering of the Isaiah 61 passage we read as a call to worship. 
And he does so to introduce his ministry to the friends and neighbors in Nazareth who knew him so well already. He says, quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, this is who I am. This is why I'm here. This is how you, who think you know me so well, should understand all that I'm about to do. Here it is, right here. Luke 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, is Jesus' Nazareth manifesto, you might say. Not only this, though. The text is not only his mission statement, it is also Luke's thesis statement for his gospel that he's written for us. And students, you know what a thesis statement is. It's a sentence or paragraph that summarizes the argument or the message of the rest of the paper you're writing, right? And so these words from the prophet Isaiah summarize what Luke wants us to see and know about Jesus in the whole of his gospel. He puts it here, right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the outset of what all that he is about to report that Jesus is going to do, because he means for this passage to explain everything that will come after. The gospel of Luke is the gospel of the poor. Liberation... Theologians in the 1970s championed Luke as the theologian of the social justice movement. He writes more about the social, economic, political implications of Jesus' life and work than any of the other gospel writers. And for that reason, I'm really excited to spend the next year in this gospel. Because it's going to challenge us in ways that the others won't, being the people that we are in the time and moment that we live in. Okay? So it's Jesus' personal mission statement. It's Luke's thesis statement for his gospel. And if that's true, if these words from Isaiah 61 on Jesus' lips function that way, if they capture the essence of his mission, and if they are also the main idea of Luke's gospel, then they bear weight upon us as well. Because, you know, the word Christian means Christ one. And so if Luke 4, 18 and 19 is what Jesus the Christ came to do, then it is also what he has sent all of his Christ ones into the world to do. And if what we call Christianity doesn't take the shape of Jesus' own life and mission as expressed here in these words, then we should, I think, begin to be truthful and call it by another name. And so there are really three things. There, There are three dangers, three things that will keep our life from being shaped by, you know, in the same likeness as Jesus' life and ministry. Three, some of them are philosophical, some of them are practical, but three dangers highlighted in this text for our consideration that really is just a way of coming into our own repentance. Three things this morning, very concrete, that I think we can do the work of repentance in, okay? And they are these, these three dangers. The first is reductionism. That's a big word. Hang in there, I'll, I'll explain. Reductionism, moralism, and consumerism. And all three of those things are in play here with these people in Nazareth. And Jesus has an answer to all three. Okay, so let's just walk through the passage, looking at each of these in turn, taking some moments to investigate our own hearts, hopefully leading to repentance and a greater faith. Okay, so first, first, the first danger that will keep your life from taking the shape of Jesus' life and mission, from Isaiah 4, 18 and 19, being stamped upon you the way it's stamped upon him, First danger is reductionism. So that's a big word. So let me explain. And I want to try to explain it using the theological categories of the three offices of Christ, which we recited the part of the children's catechism. Okay, the three offices. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And the reason the church has designated 
three offices of Christ is because the prophet Isaiah, in this passage that Jesus quotes and others, refers to the Messiah. Do you see the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? Because he's anointed me. And so Isaiah calls the Messiah the anointed one. In fact, the word Messiah means the anointed one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. And this refers to the ancient custom that would, that would take place of anointing someone, of pouring oil on their head at the outset of some special function to symbolize or to signify God's choice of that person and his authorization of their, their ministry. And so, for example... In the Old Testament scriptures, when God would call a man to be a prophet, he was usually anointed in some symbolic, ceremonial way as God's mouthpiece. And then the Spirit would come upon him and he would begin to prophesy. And so Jesus says, the Spirit is upon me, God's anointed me. But also priests, priests were anointed at the beginning of their service in the temple to consecrate them for their holy service as God's choice to be there doing what they were doing and and also kings You can probably remember a number of different stories in the Old Testament where kings were anointed, usually by a prophet or a priest, to signal God's choice and authorization for their rule. Now, the church saw each of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and thus the three offices. So Jesus, and look here, you see it here, Jesus is a prophet. I mean, the job of a prophet was to speak God's words. Jesus not only spoke God's words, that's why they're in red in our Bible, right? They're God's words. But he not only spoke God's words, in John chapter 1, verse 1, he is the word. And that's, a very, that's the very first thing that is mentioned in the quote from Isaiah. Look at those verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news, the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is Luke's emphasis, that Jesus' ministry would be full of gospel proclamation and truth-telling, of speaking prophetically into the culture and challenging the status quo, of, of shining light into people's darkness and giving them the truth that the truth might set them free. But he's also a priest. And the job of the priest was to care for the spiritual and physical needs of people. To make sacrifices for them and pray for them. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus did not sacrifice lambs like the other priests. But once and for all, at the end of the ages, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Right? And this too is mentioned in the Isaiah 61 passage. Look what, what the Lord says. If you, it's, it's, it's in greater detail. In Isaiah 61, it's more summarized here in Luke chapter 4, but in Isaiah, the prophet says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning. So priests had a ministry of compassion. Uh, and compassion is the, most, is the word most often used in the Gospels to describe Jesus. He is the true Good Samaritan who took care of the sick and the wounded and nursed them back to health. Who met people in their pain and their distress and their sadness and counseled and befriended them and gave them their joy again. Jesus takes our broken hearts in his hand and gently puts the pieces back together again. He's a faithful priest. But he's also a king. And the job of a king was to rule and to protect 
and to defend. And the prophets and the gospels are unashamed in claiming that in his earthly ministry, Jesus was setting up a new government on earth. The government of heaven on the earth. He is the son of David, the long-awaited king of Israel. And this, too, is what Isaiah expects. And Jesus says is being fulfilled. He says, verse 19, that he has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is the promise. That Jesus would overthrow the unjust, worldly, political power systems that crushed the poor and the weak. I mean, kings had a ministry of administration. And this is what Isaiah says. That Messiah would rebuild the ancient ruins. I love that that imagery there in verse 4 of Isaiah 61. That he'll rebuild the ancient ruins and repair the devastated cities. That he will come and he will begin to put the world back together and make all things new. There are radical social, political implications for Jesus. He says he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is a, a the, the scholars say that's an, a, a reflection on the, the promise in the law of the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee, without getting into too much detail, was, was a legis, part of the legislation of the Old Testament law where every 50 years, every 50 years in Israel, all of the property in the nation was to revert back to its original owner. It was this massive system of wealth redistribution, which, holy cow, that's a dirty word in our, in our day, isn't it, among people like us. And yet, and yet it was a part of God's law to make sure that the, that, that, that wealthy, you know, the wealthy just didn't continue to get more wealth on the back of the poor and the needy. God orchestrated it such that there would be this massive redistribution of resources in the nation of, of Israel. And so there's radical social political implications. Jesus says, Jubilee has come. In me, I'm going to make it happen. And it's interesting. If you, I mean, if you're not aware, I mean, if you can't picture how radical it was, Israel never celebrated the year of Jubilee. Not once. This is too much. Yet the Lord says, here I am. And here it comes. And you see, all of this, all of it encompasses what the Bible calls the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Nothing less than all of it. Gospel proclamation and personal repentance and spiritual transformation and spiritual and emotional support and counseling and cultural and political transformation and the undoing of systems of oppression and greed. But what happens, see? What happens when you take one of these three categories? Here's where I think they're helpful. Is because it's because it there's a temptation to take one of the three categories and try to define Jesus' work solely in terms of that one thing. And then what happens is you begin to diminish the rest. It was the mistake the Jews made in Jesus' day. They wanted a Messiah king, right? They wanted a king who would ride into Jerusalem on his war horse and send the Romans home with their tails tucked between their legs. And here comes Jesus, not on a war horse, but according to the prophet Zechariah, humbled and mounted on a donkey. Jesus was not the Messiah king they wanted or expected, and that's why they misunderstood him so badly. Reductionism. Okay? That's not the only time it's happened. It was also the error of the Protestant Reformation. And I feel a little dirty saying that, I have to be honest. Because we're Protestant, and we love, and we're Reformed, so we love the Reformation. But what happened in the Reformation was, is all of the emphasis was put on Jesus as a Messiah prophet, I mean, the Reformation was a biblical, theological, doctrinal movement. I mean, Luther's three marks of the true church, preaching and the right administration of the sacrament and discipline, which all still abide today, all have to do with the Scriptures. So 
according to Luther, <laughs> if you have good theology but no ministry to the poor and the needy, it's okay, you're still a church. But if you have a strong emphasis toward cultural renewal, and maybe a little weak theologically, well then, you know, we're not sure about you. It's reductionism. Okay, it's the same with us. Don't think we're off the hook, okay? We love... In our culture these days, we love Messiah priests. We love Jesus to be a Messiah priest because we are a culture dominated by therapeutic spirituality. So our culture absolutely hates prophetic Christianity. So the church has taken on a very priestly character. Be careful. It's reductionism. It's not just different historical moments, but different denominational brands, right? You have the liberal... Mainline churches that emphasize Jesus as king and they tend to dislike more prophetic expressions of Christianity. And then there are conservative evangelical Baptists and Presbyterians and Bible churches and such things. And they emphasize Jesus as a prophet and tend to be very suspicious of social social gospel movements and assume that they are unfaithful, quote-unquote. And then there are charismatic churches that emphasize Jesus as a priest and in them self-expression and self-actualization is the most important thing in Usually they have loose theological systems. And I wrote that and then I thought, see, there I go with the prophetic bias that I have. You see? See how this works? And even depending upon your life story and temperament, you will tend to gravitate towards one of the three of these. And that's why you have to be very careful of the danger of reductionism. It's a form of idolatry. Of overemphasizing the things about Christianity that you like, that you're comfortable with, in effort to try to dismiss the parts that make you uncomfortable. It's a real danger. And it'll keep you, it'll keep your life from taking on the shape of Jesus' life and mission. But there's a second danger. Second danger here. And it's the danger of moralism. Not just reductionism, but... So, we have some work to do in repenting of of our, you know, propensity towards reductionism. We also have some repenting to do in this issue... Of moralism. Look here, Jesus' friends and neighbors in Nazareth witness this public announcement of his Messiah campaign and they begin to rejoice, verse 22. Okay, so in verse 22, they speak well of him and they're rejoicing, but as you keep reading, by the end of the passage, they have driven him out of town and are threatening to throw him off a cliff. What in the world happened? What changed? And Jesus knew the reason for their rejoicing and it went right after it, which was his way. He turns to the crowd there in verses 23 and 24, and he says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And I admit, when I first started to kind of think through this passage, I was really puzzled by that at first. The commentators really helped me. And here's some of the things they said. They, they, they pointed out that Jesus' friends and neighbors are excited about his claims because they immediately begin to connect the dots about how they stand to personally benefit from what Jesus is saying is true of him. They're going, to get, they're going to get the hookup. That's what that means. Physician, heal yourself. Take care of your people. You know, start with your mom and dad. Start with your house. Take care of those who are close to you. They're going to get the hookup. That's what they expect. Now, I love baseball. I played uh, high school baseball, uh, and my boys love baseball, so we're a baseball family. I grew up, as many of you may have, skipping school to go watch the Red Sox play at Channel Lake Stadium. And so... One of the great, I mean, marvelous providences of my life was that my sister, somehow, I still marvel at it, married a professional baseball player. Most of you know this. And so our family has been incredibly spoiled for so many years. 
Maddie uh, played for the Braves, which was my, you know, childhood team, back when Dale Murphy was there and whatnot. So uh, I've traveled twice to New York City to watch the Braves play the Mets. I saw a game in Shea Stadium in the last year of Shea and then went the next year and saw, a, a, or two years later and saw a game at City Field. City Field is a much better stadium, just in case you were wondering. Every summer, uh, our family would spend a week in Atlanta going to games every night. And listen, when I say going to games every night, you need to understand, we never paid a penny for any of those games. Great seats, right behind home plate. Not only that, but we got to roll up five minutes before game time and park in the player parking lot, walk across the street into the player entrance, through the tunnels underneath the stadium, up the elevator, right to our seats. Right? My kids have no clue. No fighting for a parking space, no waiting in line for a ticket. A few, a few times my boys and I got to go early and hang out in the locker room and be on the field before... You know, for batting practice, we met Chipper Jones, we met Brian McCann, we met, met Dan Ugla, we met Andrew McCutcheon. We rode an elevator with Andrew Jones one time, and I remember my boys, they were very young, and he was their hero, and so uh, he, he, you know, walked into the elevator, and they're like, you know, doing that thing. The first jerseys we bought, Maddie still makes fun of me, the first jerseys we bought were Andrew Jones jerseys, not Uncle Maddie jerseys. <laughs> I, I still don't know why that was, but we ate... Moe's with Joel Hanrahan in Pittsburgh one year. I mean, Maddie and my dad, and I'll, listen, get this. I know I'm belaboring a point, but this is a big deal, okay? Maddie and my dad and all of the boys in our family played a wiffle ball game on the outfield of PNC Park. Okay, it was amazing. And he's retired now, so there's really no reason for me to go on living. But um, I just, I say all of that. I say all of that. say that's what life is like when you have a hookup. Right? All kinds of perks and advantages that you could never, never manage on your own. And that's what Jesus' friends and neighbors in Nazareth begin to dream about. About all of the ways that he is going to make their life great and trouble free. I mean, my brother-in-law was a professional baseball player. Okay, can you imagine having a brother-in-law who can change rocks into bread and who, can, and who can alter weather patterns, and who can heal the sick. I mean, you'd never have to pay for a doctor visit ever again. Cancel your health insurance, and listen, come Lord Jesus on that. Right? No, no, no birthday party rainouts ever in the family. Can you imagine? Those are the kinds of things they begin to dream about. It's, what, it's, what, it's what's happening in their hearts. And by the way, that's why Jesus says, when he says no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, what he means is when, when you've grown up with people and they've known you for a long time, what happens is, is, is there are high expectations that get created that even Jesus uh, is not able to live up to. And so the more familiar someone is with you, the more history you have with them, the more they feel like they have a claim on you, Problem is a prophet doesn't take his cue from people's expectations, only from God. A prophet doesn't serve his mom or his dad or his Uncle Clark, right? God sets his agenda, and that sets up an inevitable confrontation, which is why there's so many stories of men and women surrendering to calls to do what I do, to vocational ministry, and it's their relationship with their immediate family that suffers the most. Jesus immediately sees what's going on in their hearts and begins to correct them. He reminds them of the story 
of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 17, who was sent to Zarephath to help a widow. And he says there are plenty, plenty of widows in Israel that he could have helped, but God sent him to a Gentile. And then he reminds them as if to rub salt in the wound of a second case study of Elisha healing name in the Syrian general. He says Israel was full of lepers, but God sent Elisha to heal the general of the enemy army. And that's what gets them so upset. It's when he begins to say these things in verse 28 29 that they hear and all the synagogues be filled with wrath and they rose up to drive him out of town. I mean, we always try to be grateful for all of Maddie and Leslie's generosity to us and to never demand or expect anything. But I know that there were others, and I hope not us, that would call. He would tell me, that would call and just assume. They would hardly even ask. Just say, you've got to do this for me. Why? It's what's hard about being famous, by the way, or about being rich. It's that people call and just make assumptions. Because for whatever reason, people felt like they had a claim on him. He and I have talked about it, that being a part of the family or being a childhood friend gave them a claim on his generosity. And that's the problem with Jesus' family and friends in Nazareth. They assumed their history gave him a claim on them. And Jesus goes right after this. He says, he reminds them, God passed over Jewish widows to spare the widow of Zarephath. And then he really gets, that, you know, he gets them going with this because of their superiority complex towards Gentile nations. But this kind of nationalistic pride and self-righteousness that the Jewish people so desperately struggle with is a form of moralism. And by moralism, I mean the idea that I can put God in my debt by being good or by belonging to the right group. Moralism says be good and then God owes you. But Jesus' kingdom, we are told here, yet again, is a kingdom of grace. It does not go to the deserving and the well-connected. It goes to the needy and the outsider. And if you think, for whatever reason, that you have a claim on it, you'll miss it. That's the teaching. And that's the second danger. The danger of reductionism, the danger of moralism. But there's third one, a third, a third danger here that will keep your life from taking the shape of Jesus' life and mission just by way of repentance this morning, and that is the danger of consumerism. And this is more of an implication, an inference from the text, so I'll be really short. You see, the fatal flaw of the family, friends, and neighbors in Nazareth was to think that the good news of Jesus' gospel proclamation from Isaiah 61, was the, that the good news of it was how they would benefit from his mission, not how they would participate in his mission. The good news for them was how they would benefit, not how they would be free to participate. And it's a fatal mistake. And we too have been trained to see ourselves first and foremost as consumers with needs to be met without really even knowing it. Salvation has become, for most evangelical Westerners, about how God meets our needs. It's about overcoming our guilt or solving problems, discovering the meaning of our existence, or feeling included in love, these sorts of things. And of course, all of that is part of what the Bible means by salvation. But when God meeting our needs becomes the most important thing, the result is self-absorption and narcissism. And so you hear things like this all the time. Well, I don't like the preaching at this church, so I'm going to go somewhere else. I've not been able to make any friends here, so it's time for me to move on. Listen, relationships are important, of course, but when what you're getting, when how well you're being served becomes how you start to make decisions, you've crossed the line over into consumerism. The good news of the gospel is not that we only benefit from Jesus' work, but also that we are set free and empowered by the spirit of Jesus to participate in it. That's the, listen, that's the real miracle. 
the real miracle is that he promises not just to die to save me from my sins. He promises to come into my life and to overcome my selfishness and greed and to set me free to find joy and meaning in a life of mission and serving other people. The Bible says Christ died for us. It's such good news. And we tend to be very pretty clear about that. But the Bible also says that we are united to Christ in his death. And we're not so clear about that. Because it means if you're, if, if you're indeed a Christian, not only do you benefit from Christ's death, but you begin to participate in it. Your life begins to take the shape of his life and mission. You live a life of sacrificial love and service. And so one of the things we have to reckon with is the Bible sees our humanity not in terms of needs to be met, but in terms of capacities and gifts to be offered to God and others. We were created not to consume, but to give and to love and to serve. If an illustration would help, imagine yourself standing on the shore of a rushing river. Okay, not the Peace River, which kind of just strolls along. I'm not even sure that thing moves. Picture the Nantahala or the Colorado River with rapids and waterfalls and all of these things. And most of us, see, like to think of Christianity as something like this. We're familiar with the river. We like the river. We may even live near the river. And when we get tired and we need to be refreshed, we come to the river to get a drink or to walk out into the water up to our knees. Or if we feel dirty, we come and get some water from the river to wash our clothes, but we're careful to stay near the shoreline for fear of being swept away by the pull of the current. Okay, that's not Christianity. That's consumerism. The Bible defines Christianity much differently. To become a Christian means that you come to the edge of the river, you see its power, you know that if you get caught up in the current, you're going to be swept away and dashed maybe against the rocks and fall over a waterfall, maybe even drowned. But then you leap. Do you want to know what that looks like? In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, Peter writes to the church and says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. We're priests. He says that we're a royal priesthood, which means we're kings. And all of this to declare the praises, and so we're prophets. Prophet, priest, and king. There it is again. You want to know what it looks like for your life to take the shape of his life? It's that you begin to function in the same kinds of ways that he functioned as prophet, priest, and king. Now let me make... Two points of application, and then I'm done. And the first is this. See, sanctification, leaping, letting your life be carried away by the river of God's working in the world means that you have one area of strength, okay? Every single person in the room, you have one area of strength, but that you also allow for God to continue to grow you in all three. So if you're naturally a prophet, which in the Baptist church I grew up in was code for jerk. Anybody else have that experience? It meant you could be as rude as you wanted to and you had a ready-made excuse. I can't help it. I'm a prophet. Right? It means you embrace that. But you also let the Spirit soften you at the same time and make you more priestly. Because if you become more priestly, it will make you a better prophet. Or if you're naturally very priestly, you're, you're the opposite. You're kind and gentle and sensitive to others. Then be that. Be that. But also let Him make you a better truth teller. Or if you're naturally a king... You may have strong administrative gifts. You may be task-oriented, and you need to 
harness that strength, but also ask the Spirit to give you a heart for people. Maybe, maybe, maybe it means, if you're as task-oriented as I am, maybe one, one step in the right direction means you just write people's name on your to-do list. At least you make that, that much movement. Sanctification means whatever your area of strength is, you become better at that thing, but at the same time, you also find yourself growing in the other two. But there's another application, and it's an application for us as a church. And that is that in response to what Brad has already shared and in, in, in the offering we're going to take in just a minute, the Heart for Winter Haven, I believe strongly, is a strategic initiative to strengthen us in an area of potential weakness. The church excels at prophetic aspects of Christianity. Pastors like me are trained to be prophets. That's what I do for a living. We're not trained as priests. My master's degree program consists in 30 hours of Bible and three hours of counseling. That's called reductionism, by the way. We're not trained as kings. I have administrative gifts, but I don't have a business degree. So what the church does best is preach and teach, but the mission is so much more, to bind up the brokenhearted, to walk with people through their pain and struggle, to set people free from their idols and addictions, and to break the chains of injustice that keep people in poverty, to rebuild the ruins of a city, the physical ruins, the broken social institutions and political structures that keep the flourishing God intends for the people of our city uh, to experience. There's so much work to do. There's so much work to do. Would you come to the river? And would you leap? As we take this offering, be generous. Be generous in this offering we're going to take. Luke 4, 18 and 19 is a massive, raging river that threatens to sweep us away. But my prayer for all of us is that we would come to the edge and we would leap. So let's pray together as we continue in our service this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for the great work that you've come to do on our behalf. And thank you for the promise that your coming also means that we not only benefit greatly from all that you've done to save us, but that you have come and, and, and gone back to heaven to be with the Father and sent the Holy Spirit into the world and into our hearts that our life might take the shape of your life and mission, that we might participate in the ongoing work of your Spirit in the world, of taking the gospel to all the nations of the earth, to seeing all things made new in our city, in our lives. And so there's, there's so much work. It can be overwhelming. There's so much work in front of us to do. And so we pray that you would help us be wise. We pray for strength and for energy. We pray for the grace to repent in these areas we've spoken about this morning so that we might not be guilty of the sin of reductionism or uh, an idolatry of that, that we might not be guilty of the idolatry and sin of moralism or the idolatry and sin of consumerism, that we might be instead people that understand our whole life to be given to following you, bearing fruit, full of beautiful works, so that we are a city on a hill, a light for the whole world to see, that you might be honored and glorified in us. It's our hope and prayer, so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The promise of the Gospels and the warning of the Gospels is that if we try to keep our lives, we will, at the end of the day, lose them. But if we lose them, uh, then in the losing of them, we'll actually find life. If you come to the river and you leap, it may feel like you're going to be thrown against the rocks and crushed to bits, but the reality is... Uh, that in the leaping is where you find life. And that's the promise of this benediction. That to all those who've, who've dared to align their life purpose with his, that God comes to promise all of his blessing and all of his provision to be with you and to care for you and to make sure you have all that you need 
That is the promise of these words. And so as he sends us out, send us out, Lord. Keep, I love, this, I love the line, keep us from just singing. Send us out. And as he sends us, here's the promise of his going with you. So receive these words of the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.